When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hello, dear listeners. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, your host and a woman who seriously loves making the entire month of November spooky as hell. Which leads me straight into today's episode. Now, I know that last week I said up next would be an episode on Penelope. And don't get me wrong, that will happen soon. But for now, guys, it's October. And for the past two years of this podcast, I have dedicated October to ancient Greek mythology's spookier, more gruesome stories. And I don't want this year to be any different. 
So we'll get back to Penelope in November, but for now, it's spooky gruesome times. Spooky is relative here. Greek mythology is rarely spooky, but it sure can be violent, and that's a fine consolation for October. Plus, who doesn't love a story about the importance of wine? Now, you may also be thinking, wait, didn't Liv tell this Bacchae story, like, really early on in the podcast? And the answer is yes, I kind of did. But honestly, I look back on some of those early episodes, and I just did not do these stories justice. I was freshly learning this whole storytelling thing, let alone the whole podcasting thing, and so I've decided that eventually I will retell many of those very early stories, simply because they deserve more, and you deserve to hear the full stories. And so we're starting with Euripides' Bacchae, because my god, this one specifically, I did not do it justice. There is so much more to this play than I told you before. So we're doing this one over, and better, way better. This is episode 61, Punishing Pentheus, the Frantic and Violent Women of Euripides' Bacchae, part one. Dionysus! Bacchus, as he's often called, everyone's favorite drunken god. Many different women of mythology are credited with being his mother, depending on where you look. Some say it's a woman named Dione, some Io, even Persephone and Demeter can be claimed as Dionysus' mother. But of course, the most common story is the one I told you so, so many episodes ago now. But let's just recap it, shall we? Because it's been a while. Cadmus and Harmonia, king and queen of Thebes, and two of my all-time favorite characters of all of Greek mythology, have many children together. One is named Semele, which means moon. Her story, as so many are, is intertwined with the sexual escapades of Zeus. He comes upon Semele, and as is his way, he wants to have sex with her. So they start a so-called affair. One I hope is consensual, but it isn't clear in the source I'm reading now, and... Although important, this really isn't about that part. It's about the child they have. When Hera finds out that Zeus and Semele have been together, she does as Hera often does. She looks to punish the woman in whatever way she can. I often paint Hera as being particularly awful for how she handles these things, but I do think we also have to realize that it's likely all she could do to take out her hurt and her rage. If you're married to the king of the gods, there isn't much you can punish him with, but I imagine you'd feel as though you simply must punish someone. There's no divorce in ancient Greece, let alone the mythology, and Zeus is going to continue to do what he does. Hera needs a release somehow, and sadly, it ends up targeting these women all too often. Hera comes upon Semele, who is six months pregnant, disguising herself as a neighbor woman. This strange woman convinces Semele to request something of this mysterious man she's been having a relationship with. You see, he'd been disguising himself every time he'd seen Semele. She didn't know much about him, and this neighbor woman makes a good point. She has the right to ask him to reveal himself. She is, after all, pregnant with his child. Semele does this. She asks her lover to reveal himself, and though he refuses at first, Zeus does eventually reveal himself to Semele. There are variations on how and why he does, because he knows full well what will happen. But he does, and Semele either bursts into flames or is hit with a lightning bolt. Because a mortal cannot look at the true godly form of an Olympian. Or, well, one of those things happens. Semele dies, but Hermes saves her unborn child and sews him into Zeus's thigh so the baby can continue cooking, because that's Greek mythology. Eventually, the child is born of Zeus, and this child is Dionysus, or Bacchus, as he's also called. 
Sometimes this means that Dionysus is attributed with being only the child of Zeus because he's the one who births him, but of course that's patriarchal bullshit. He's the child of Semele, the mortal child of Cadmus and Harmonia, and of Zeus, the man who fucks literally everything up. It isn't enough for Hera that Semele has died because of her. This child is still an issue. So when Dionysus is born, Hera calls upon some of the Titans. I'll be honest, sometimes it's hard to track chronology here, so I don't know if these are Titans before they're imprisoned, or if it's just ones who didn't meet with Zeus's wrath. Either way, she calls on some Titans. Dionysus is born horned and crowned with writhing snakes, and he's able to transform himself Dionysus isn't your standard child, or even your standard god-baby. Dionysus is something else. This is shown throughout his stories, but most obviously in the way he's born. Not everyone has horns and a crown of snakes. The Titans take baby Dionysus, and despite everything special about this child, they're still able to rip him to shreds. Where the blood falls, a pomegranate tree sprouts and these ripped-up shreds are placed in a cauldron. But before the Titans can do anything further or call upon Hera to do whatever it is she's planned next, Rhea, Zeus's mother, comes upon what's happening and takes the pieces of baby Dionysus and puts them back together, bringing him back to life. He's then given to Persephone for protection. She brings him to a king and queen, Athamas and Aino. There he's to be raised amongst the women slaves, to be disguised as a girl himself, all in an attempt to keep him from being found by Hera. But of course she isn't easily deceived. Hera finds out about this, and she drives Athamas and Aino mad, causing Athamas to kill his own son, thinking he's a stag in the forest. The childhood and even young adulthood of Dionysus is full of dramatic stories. There are more, even, but we'll need to save those for another day. Dionysus is fascinating because he's one of the few gods who actually goes through childhood. Many of the others are born into adulthood or were simply never told about what they experienced as children, leading us to believe they're fairly benign childhoods, if they happened at all, but not Dionysus. Let's now take a moment to talk a bit about Greek drama. It's not only important to this story because what I'm about to tell you is a Greek tragedy, no, also because everything about Greek drama was in dedication to the very god I've just told you about. Dionysus is the god of wine, revelry, and theater. Every year the Athenians held the Great Dionysia, a festival of theater. It was held in the spring, and while ultimately a festival devoted to theater, it was also incredibly political. The Athenians prided themselves on their democracy and their theatre, and all of the latter was for Dionysus. The festival always began with a procession for the god, there was libations and sacrifices, and a statue of Dionysus was installed in the theatre, called the Theatre of Dionysus, on the slopes of the Acropolis. I've been to the ruins, it's magnificent. The tragedies were performed over three days, with three poets each contributing three plays. Each would also contribute a satyr play. There were judges, and the dramatists were awarded first, second, and third place. 
If I could choose to go back in time and could only pick one place and one time to go in the whole of human history, I would go back to one of these festivals. We have so little left from what they did to these events, but my god, they must have been so incredible. Just imagine what you'd be witnessing in this ancient world, the stage direction, the props on stage, some of the things they used to like bring people in from above. <sighs> The actors were, of course, all men, but they also wore masks. Variations on what we now know of the masks of comedy and tragedy, you know, the happy and the sad. Those concepts are based on Greek drama. Imagine those masks. The stories being told on the stage. The choruses, the singing, because much of it was sung. Anyway, I could go on. It must have been unbelievable. Now, with this background in Greek drama and how the plays were performed... Let me now tell you about a particular play, the one we're here for, by my favorite Greek dramatist, Euripides, and which was a favorite of none other than one of Rome's more famously horrific emperors, Nero. Nero loved this play, he who played the fiddle while Rome burned. It says a lot about what's to come, I'd say. <laughs> Our play opens in Thebes, in front of the palace, the Cadmion. Founded by Cadmus and Harmonia, the city is now run by Cadmus's grandson, its new king, Pentheus. Cadmus is still living, but he's given the kingship to his grandson. Dionysus appears. He explains that he's arrived here in Thebes. He's a god disguised as a man. He's speaking to the audience, but also to no one. He stands in front of a smoldering tomb, the tomb of his own mother, Semele, still smoking from her death at the hands of Zeus. Though as Dionysus rightly points out, the death was brought on by Hera alone in her rage and jealousy. Dionysus explains where he's come from, what's led him here to Thebes. He's traveled the world, he tells. He's been to Persia and Arabia, to the Lydians and the Phrygians, all of Asia Minor he's traveled, spreading his Bacchic rites and traditions. In Ann Carson's version, Dionysus explains who he is. He says he's not a god or a ghost, not a spirit, an angel, a principle or element. He explains that there isn't a word for it in English, that the Greeks said daemon. Dionysus has, quote, set Asia dancing by bringing his mysteries to the continent. But now, here in Thebes, he's introducing his mysteries and rites to Greece for the first time. He's come to thrill. Quote, here's what you'll need. A fawn skin, a thyrsus, and absolute submission. My mother's sisters are the reason I'm here, Dionysus explains. They deny that I'm a child of Zeus, that my mother, Semele, was with the king of the gods. They say that she was seduced by only some mortal and that she lied and said it was Zeus to distract from her transgressions. My mother's sisters say this about her, and they say it was all devised by my grandfather, Cadmus. My aunts gloat, telling everyone who will listen that this is the reason my mother was killed by Zeus, because she claimed to have been with him. This is why I'm here, Dionysus explains, why I've driven these women from their homes and into the mountainous forests around Thebes. I've driven them mad. They dance through the forests in a frenzy, all these women of Thebes. This city must learn that they have no idea what it means to be initiated into the Bacchic rites, that they have no idea what my Bacchanals entail. 
I'm here to defend my mother, to speak on her behalf as her godson of Zeus. Or, as Anne Carson translates, he's here to have the people of Thebes, quote, call me the son of Zeus and call me a daemon. This is how the character of Dionysus opens Euripides' back eye. He's a god on the stage from the start. I think it's also important to note the difference in Dionysus versus the other children Zeus has with mortals. His other children, if they're godly at all, are demigods, heroes with minimal powers, if any. Dionysus is a full-blown god, one who eventually takes his place amongst the Olympians. He's one of the most widely worshipped gods, one of the most important Olympians, yet he's the son of a mortal. It's a fascinating differentiation. Also, as Emily Wilson notes in the introduction to her translation, and we know how I feel about her, Dionysus' reach in terms of worship and daily life in ancient Greece was far greater than the other Olympians. His cult of worship connected with women and the poor more than any other, because the wine partying, the frenzied dancing was something everyone could experience. It was, as Emily Wilson explains, quote, the most widely available route the Greeks had towards out-of-self experience. Of course, for the same reason and his connection to the other, to the East, the so-called barbarians, he was also dangerous to the patriarchy, to the status quo, and to ancient Greek society. Dionysus continues his speaking to the audience, but again, also to no one. Now the city of Thebes has Pentheus as its king. Cadmus has given it up to his grandson, a man who is against me as a god, who doesn't include me in his prayers or libations or sacrifices. This is why I'm here, to prove to the city of Thebes and its king that I am a god. And, he continues, if the Thebans try to remove their now Bacchae women from the forests, I will go to battle with them with my maenads by my side. Dionysus leaves, returning to his followers, those who came to Thebes with him, and those he's collected from Thebes itself. In his wake, his chorus of Bacchants, more followers, sing about the god, his history, how he brought them to where they are. When the chorus has finished, Tiresias, the blind prophet we know from so many other stories, mostly taking place in Thebes, enters the stage. He's dressed as one of Dionysus's Bacchants, his maenads, with a fawn skin over his shoulders and a thyrsus, the ceremonial reed wand. He asks for Cadmus to be called to him, to be told Tiresias is looking for him. Cadmus arrives, he's dressed the same way, he explains they've agreed to do this together, to promote these Dionysian rites, to wear the costume of the gods together. He is my grandson, after all, Cadmus adds. How amazing it is to feel young, Cadmus explains. The costumes they've donned for Dionysus have brought them youth again. Tiresias confirms he feels the same way. These old men are young. The two men prepare to leave Thebes, to find their way to Dionysus and his maenads in the forested mountains outside of Thebes. They're the only ones from the city planning to join the gods, they both note. The only ones with any sense. The god will lead us to where they are, Tiresias says, and Cadmus tells him he will act as the eyes, since Tiresias can't see. But before they can leave, Pentheus arrives. Cadmus sees him coming. He's rushing. He seems excited. 
At first, he doesn't see them. He's distracted. He has a rant to give about the women of Thebes, how they've run off to worship this false god, this strange man who's arrived from the east, saying he's some god, some daemon called Dionysus. All these women are doing is drinking wine and slinking off with men. It's a disgrace. All for this fake god and his fake rituals. It's impossible, Pentheus says. There is no god. Semele, my aunt, was killed by Zeus for her lies, and her child was killed with her. Pentheus explains that he's already locked up some of the women who abandoned their homes to worship this god in the woods. They're being watched in the city's prisons. Others, though, he's still trying to capture, like his own mother, Agavi, and his aunts Aino and Atanui. They're in the woods somewhere, worshipping this nonsense god from the east, this foreigner. Finally, he sees Cadmus and Tiresias. He's surprised, but he finds it comical, these old men dressed up as worshippers of this strange new god. What are you doing? he asks. You're trying to placate this nonsense? You're trying to feel young again? Must be you, Tiresias, who's convinced my grandfather to do this. Let me translate this a bit. The biggest concern Pentheus has with the importation of these Bacchic rites into Thebes is that the women have been drinking a lot and that in that intoxication, they've found a new kind of freedom. They're not being confined to their homes, something that was incredibly freeing for ancient Greek women because that's where they were all the time. They're out in the woods with their friends and lots and lots of wine. They're being free with their sexuality. It's a bacchanal. And it's threatening to the men in charge to have their women finding this type of freedom, any type of freedom, to just do whatever the hell they want outside of the home where they're not being controlled. Pentheus is willing to risk this being a real and true god that he's not worshipping appropriately just to defend his own power and masculinity. He must be a false god because a real god wouldn't give women any of this kind of freedom of their sexuality. Tiresias is measured in his response. He's trying to help Pentheus. You have no idea how big and important this god will become in Greece, Tiresias tells the king. Just as Demeter feeds us with dry food, keeps us alive, this god, Dionysus, feeds us in drink. He's the god who invented our wine that frees us from sadness and brings us sleep at night. There's no other cure for what we humans face. Just wine. Wine brought to us by this god. Dionysus. Wine is super important, you guys, and that's why I'm enjoying a nice glass of red as I record this episode, because how could I possibly tell this story without it? When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tiresias expands upon the power and importance of Dionysus beyond the vitality of wine. There's a bit more. These Bacchic rites also bring prophetic abilities, he tells Pentheus. When the god comes upon a person, they're able to see the future, things they couldn't see without him. Tiresias has more to tell about just how wide-reaching the power of Dionysus will become throughout Greece. Tiresias is, after all, a prophet himself, and a famous one. He explains that Dionysus will be worshipped throughout, including at Delphi itself. He's trying to help Pentheus, to convince him to worship this god as he should, not to continue to deny his existence and the character of the god's mother. It's a dangerous game that Pentheus is playing. You should worship him as the god he is, Tiresias continues, but either way, Cadmus and I will be doing just that. We've dressed in the costume of the Bacchants, we'll properly worship this god and give him the reverence and respect he deserves. Cadmus agrees, reminding Pentheus of what happened to his cousin, Actaeon, when he didn't properly revere a god, Artemis. He was torn apart by his own dogs. But Pentheus isn't listening. He doesn't want to hear what these men are telling him. He calls upon the Thebans to find this man who's wandering around spreading the news of this mysterious god, who Pentheus says looks like a girl. Tiresias and Cadmus realize there isn't anything more they can do to convince Pentheus of something he doesn't want to be convinced of, so they leave, 
noting that they will do their best to convince the god not to punish all the Thebans for Pentheus's actions. Meanwhile, the chorus sings of these decisions by the three men, and once again of the story of Dionysus. They call upon gods and sing of Dionysus and the Bacchic rites that he's just brought to Greece. Pentheus's guards have found Dionysus. They bring in the god, who's not bothered at all, explaining it wasn't hard to find him, nor to tie him up. He just held out his hands and said, it's fine to take me. They've brought Dionysus to Pentheus, but they also have to tell him that all the other women he'd captured, well, they've gotten away. Their shackles simply fell off, and the prison doors just opened, all on their own, the guards tell Pentheus. After a little frustration about what he's lost, Pentheus examines this man, this seeming mortal who's brought these Bacchic rites to Thebes from a far-off land. Well, he says, you're not bad-looking. To a woman, that is, he makes sure to add. Something we'll find more and more obvious here is that Pentheus is a bit repressed, either in his sexuality or gender or both. Where do you come from? he asks Dionysus. How did you learn these rites? Dionysus tells him that he comes from the east, from Lydia, the city of Sardis, and that it was Dionysus himself who taught him these rites, the son of Zeus. Remember, he's disguised himself as a mortal here. Is there a Zeus from where you come from that makes new gods? Pentheus asks. No, Dionysus responds. It's the same Zeus as here, the one who lay with Semele, he makes sure to add. Pentheus continues to interrogate him about how he knows these rites, what the rites are all about, how he supposedly learned them from Dionysus himself. He doesn't want to believe any of it, of course, but Dionysus, disguised as this mortal, holds true to his story. Is Thebes the first place you've brought these rites? Pentheus asks next. All of the barbarians know them now, Dionysus says in answer. By this he means that he's taught his rites to all of the east, everywhere in that region that isn't Greek. As I've mentioned to y'all before, barbarian doesn't mean what we use it to mean now. It simply means people that aren't Greek, typically to the east, because that's the region the Greeks knew of where non-Greeks lived. So Dionysus means that he's taught everyone else before finally bringing his rites to the Greeks. None of this serves to convince Pentheus of anything, though. He continues his interrogation and threatens Dionysus with whatever he can think of before finally locking him away for infecting the women of Thebes with this so-called madness that is... Really, just a bit of agency. As Dionysus is locked away in the palace's prison, his chorus of Bacchants sings once more about their god. Hearing them, he calls out for their help. The earth shakes on his request, shaking the palace and threatening to bring everything down. But it doesn't. Instead, Semele's tomb flares up. The chorus of Bacchant's panics, but before long Dionysus himself, though still disguised as this mortal, walks calmly from the palace. He tells the chorus how he freed himself with the help of the god Dionysus who tricked Pentheus into believing he was tying up this man when really he was tying up a bull. <laughs> the fire at Semele's tomb... Dionysus explains, was also the work of the god, and it distracted Pentheus, and he fled from where he'd brought Dionysus to be tied up and locked away. 
So many lies did the god put into Pentheus's head that he exhausted himself wielding his sword in defense of his palace and himself and instead tore his own palace to the ground in his confusion. Meanwhile, I, Dionysus as this mortal continues, walked calmly and freely from the palace and here I am. As Dionysus is explaining this to his followers, Pentheus once more exits the palace. He's looking for his prisoner before realizing there he is, free and not even trying to get away. They argue how this is even possible, Pentheus still refusing to believe there's a god involved. Dionysus really doesn't care what Pentheus says at this point. He's sick of this man and his inability to believe in what is right in front of him. Before Dionysus is too fed up, though, a messenger arrives with news of the women of Thebes, the Bacchants, up in the mountains. I've seen the women in the woods, he explains. There are three groups of them, led by your mother, Agavi, and her sisters, Aino and Etanoe. They were peaceful when I first saw them, he explains, not drunken like you've said and not flaunting or throwing about their sexuality like you've warned us about, Pentheus. They were just lying on the grass, quite calmly, serenely even. But, the messenger continues, when your mother, Agavi, heard the sounds of cattle nearby, she stood up and awoke the rest of the women to do the same. This is where things get good. The women that leapt up at Agave's call were old and young, married and not. They let their hair loose down their shoulders, flowing freely. They tightened up their fawn skins around themselves. Some wore snakes wrapped around their bodies, licking at their cheeks. Some held animals of all sorts, even wolf pups. In their arms, the new mothers in the group nursed these animals with their own milk. Some used their thirsty to stab into the earth or into rocks, creating streams of water and even wine that erupted so that they could drink from them. Others dug into the ground and drank the milk that poured out as they did. Honey dripped from other thirsty. They had everything. The messenger finishes this part of the story by telling Pentheus that if he'd seen it for himself with this messenger just witnessed, he'd be treating this god with all the respect he could muster rather than trying to imprison his follower. He explains that they'd been trying to hunt for these women, on Pentheus's orders, when Agave had come upon him and attempted to have the other women work together to tear him to pieces. He was able to escape, if only just. When we'd escaped, the messenger continues, we watched as the women and the girls turned their attention to the cows and the bulls of our herd, one by one tearing them all to bloody shreds before our eyes. Then, the women turned on the nearby village, taking on the armed men of the village without any weapons of their own. They took the children away with them and escaped every defense the villagers had. Even fire didn't burn the women. Women, quote, did these things to men. The messenger finishes telling his story to Pentheus by once more emphasizing that they must worship this god for what he is. His power has been proven. Plus, he says, what would we have without wine? Without wine, we wouldn't have Aphrodite and the sex she brings us. Without wine or sex, what is the point? (laughs) 
Oh, thank you all for listening. What a play this is, you guys. When I started it, I didn't even realize this would end up being two parts. Sorry, but that's the story of this podcast lately, isn't it? I'm thorough as fuck. We'll be back next week with the violent end to this epic play. And speaking of, I'll have this listed in the episode's description, but I've been working from three translations or versions, really, of the play. One by James Morewood, that's an Oxford World Classic, and one by the brilliant Anne Carson, who's a badass translator, but in this case, she's made it her very own. It's a version, really, rather than a translation. I also very briefly referred to Emily Wilson's translation. That's because I wrote this whole damn episode before realizing I had a third translation of the play, and it was by Emily Wilson. Anyway, I'll probably read hers and Anne Carson's for the next part. Also, I referred to some other books on mythology for this story. Those are listed in the description, too. But the version I really want to focus on here is Anne Carson's. She's experimental in her translations. That's why I'm calling it a version. They're truly something else in such a good way. Her introduction to this play is written in verse, and it alone is fascinating. She makes the point that while Dionysus is often referred to as a new god, having come to the pantheon of Olympians later, taking Hestia's place, and coming from the east, he's really far more ancient. His name appears on Linear B tablets, dating to the 12th century BCE. He's more ancient than most, is what that means. He's been around since the beginning of ancient Greek writing, let alone the Eastern cultures he came from as well. He's in some of the earliest things we can translate. She also points out that the wild and frantic women that worship Dionysus in this play, that destroy livestock, that kill the people of Thebes, including their king, spoilers, I'm sorry, they existed before this. They existed before they were this way. They were at peace in the mountains, even as the messenger says, calm and collected before men. I'd highly recommend Ann Carson's version, and all of hers, really. I've mentioned her before because she has so many and she's awesome. And she's Canadian, which is always cool. Anyway, thanks for listening. You're all the best. As usual, please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes to really boost me and this podcast. You can listen anywhere, but please do those things on iTunes to help me out. You are all the best. I'm Liv, and oh, how I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan... Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile... 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.